Healthwise. Coyer. And this is Sarah Kane. And we'd like to welcome you to episode 23 of the HealthWise Report, the audio edition. Yeah, welcome to the show, everyone. This episode, we have a special guest. Yeah, his name is Will Kay. Dr. William Kay is a graduate of the University of Washington and Georgetown University School of Medicine. His postdoctoral residency was in surgery and endoscopy. Dr. Kay became board certified by the American Board of Surgery and held a medical license to practice surgery and medicine in Washington, Oregon, and Ohio. After four years of successful practice as an attending surgeon with privileges at prestigious hospitals, Dr. K made a decision to leave the practice of medicine and surgery. Six months after his decision, his license was revoked by the Oregon Board of Medical Examiners for being disruptive and not filing a change of address in a timely manner after moving to his new home. Dr. K now provides private consultation as a medical advocate and advisor by helping individuals safely navigate a medical system that has forgotten that the patient should come first. We're introducing William Kay, and he's a friend of ours. We consider him our first medical health-wise partner. We usually uh, don't play well with others, and that's particularly true with most doctors out there. <laughs> but we think Will Kay is okay for anyone out there who would like to get someone with that specialized training and education that a person gets with from med school and yet wants someone that they're pretty sure they can trust who's essentially not in the establishment and not beholden to the establishment anymore, um, he's a good guy to go to. And in the future, we're going to be pushing people his way. Yeah. And I'd like to also mention that he's a very brave man. By coming on our show, he's entered the lion's den. Wouldn't you say, Sarah? The, yeah, definitely. The report. We don't get too many doctors and surgeons, do we? <laughs> Hardly. So how you doing, Will? I'm doing great. Thank you very much, uh, Thomas and Sarah. It's a, it's a very nice introduction, and I don't really feel like I'm in a lion's den. We've talked before, and I, I feel very comfortable with you and your report, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. All right, well, before we really get started, is there anything else you'd like to say about yourself and your history and anything else? Well, you know, Sarah, I think you did a good job of, you know, summing up uh, my, my career and where I'm at right now. I think the only thing I'd like to add is that you know, my passion right now is pretty much what you said, and that is, you know, I became a physician and a doctor to help patients. and I've been passionate about it throughout my career. Unfortunately, I found myself in a system where I found that nearly impossible to obtain without a tremendous amount of conflict and disruption in my life and the life of my patients. 
So I've really turned more towards, you know, trying to be a medical advocate and helping people negotiate their health care. Unfortunately, it doesn't mean I can directly take care of them, but I can help them avoid some of the conflicts and things I've identified in my previous practice. One of the things that we found in both alternative medicine and so-called mainstream medicine, we've seen over and over again, and I think mainstream medicine is actually more guilty of this, is that there is a certain religious dogma about things that certain things are supposedly true, have to be true, can't be argued, and anyone who does argue against it, tries to come up with scientific evidence to the contrary, is essentially a blasphemer. There is a certain amount of brainwashing involved, you know, with all the schooling and stuff that's involved, in addition to the whatever real science is there. And I remember talking to you before, and you said it's it's as if there's a brainwashing going on with the way the med schools have you, you know, with your internships and so forth, there's a certain amount of sleep deprivation and so forth. Could, could you tell us about that, what it was like? Yeah, I'd be happy to. My course in... My medical education started out like most young people who, you know, decide to get into medicine, usually for a lot of good reasons uh, most of the time. And, you know, we come in wanting to help the sick and save the world, you know, all these sorts of, all these sorts of good feelings. And, you know, when we get into medicine, the, the, the training begins, and, and the training is very rigid. Uh, it is very monolithic, meaning they, they really pick one paradigm that they focus on. The selection of diseases, the selection of treatments, the options on how to approach things is not demonstrated or taught to us in its entirety. It is hand-selected by the medical schools. It, it is hand-selected by the residencies. And when you talk about the brainwashing, you know, I came across a, an interesting quote after our conversation, I was thinking about that some more. And, you know, I, I looked up brainwashing and, and kind of what, how that's worked in militaries and how that's worked in governments. And brainwashing is, is known to include things like sleep deprivation, what they call partial sensory deprivation, meaning low lights, um, you know, no exposure to the sunlight, psychological harassment, and inciting feelings of guilt and group social pressure. Those are the classic things that a government will use in its brainwashing techniques. And when I think about my residency in particular, those were the conditions that we were under for five years straight. And it was very systematic of keeping us sleep deprived. We were sensory deprived by being in the hospitals for tremendously long hours. There was a significant amount of psychological harassment from our attending doctors who were training us. It wasn't a kind environment. And there was a lot of, you know, proposition of guilt uh, when things went wrong that were placed upon us and the social pressure from our peers to not appear weak and to do everything that's asked of us was tremendous. Do you think that that makes it more difficult for doctors to question early on the... The dogma? The dogma, yeah. I, I would argue it makes it almost impossible because the... It's kind of like, you know, in law, what they would call a contract of adhesion, where an employer comes to an employee who's already on board and says, I need you to sign this agreement or else you're going to lose your job. Those kind of contracts are considered illegal. Unfortunately, they happen a lot. 
in our case, the contract of adhesion was, you know, we have invested through our med school tremendous amount of loans. Our families have invested. Um, our entire life in our mind is set up to be a doctor, and we've already gone halfway down that road. And once you get into the residency position, you are presented continually with that contract of adhesion. Here is how you're going to do things. Here is the way you're going to think. And if you are not willing to follow along, we can end this ride anytime. And the fear of what am I going to do? What could I possibly do if I lose my residency? I'm not trained in anything else. They really have you behind a barrel. Well, in regards to the whole group thing, I remember that the one of the first things that the AMA did when it began its medical medical monopoly was that it started mandating licensing. It got all the like state governments to go along with its licensing scheme so that you had to be licensed to be a doctor to practice any kind of medicine. And of course, who are the gatekeepers for that licensing? Well, it's the AMA. It was to you know, people think that licensing is a good thing, that it helps promote standards, and it can. It can do that, but I don't think that was the real intent. And they actually admitted in their original code of ethics that one of their most important ethics was that they remove competition from the marketplace. And that wasn't, and they didn't mention anything about better patient care, better standards. No, no, it w that was considered ethical to remove competition, to kill the competition. It's part of their business model. It's part of their business model, which they implemented this code of ethics after they started their, you know, promotion of licensing across the country. And so, more or less, you have to be a team player, you know, t to stay in the system. That, that's what it's about. Will, do you have anything to say on that? Absolutely. You're, you know, 100% correct. The power or the axe that's really hanging over the heads of today's practicing physicians is the concept of licensure. And if I can elaborate on that a little bit in my well, own personal do. experience. Yes. The way they use that, which most people are not aware of, you know, people think, well, I want to go to a licensed physician. I want to go to a physician that has all the board certifications and all the things on the wall because it means that, wow, you know, they're really uh, blue ribbon top notch and all this sort of thing. What they don't realize is that once they're in that system and once they have that license and once they've got the board certifications and the hospital privileges, they're at a very strong disadvantage to practicing medicine on an individual basis with patients without the threat of losing those things. And losing those things within medicine is not just, wow, you don't look as good in terms of marketing or this sort of thing. No, if you lose your license, it is a felony for you to practice medicine in any way, shape, or form. And the level at which they control people with the license is all the way down at the local level at the hospitals. And the hospitals have a hospital staff administration and hospital staff bylaws. And if they feel that you have violated their bylaws, they will report you to that state's board of medical examiners and you will most likely be investigated and lose your license because what the state board will do is come back to that hospital and say we don't need any proof from you that the doctor did anything egregious all we need is a preponderance show of hands a majority vote within that specialty at that hospital that that doctor is a bad doctor and we will revoke his license with nothing more than that 
So you so you have a lot of you have a lot of competition control at the level of the you know local hospitals. For instance, if you have a doctor who has decided to bring in a new technique or do something different than the status quo, and the other doctors feel threatened by it, they can very easily call a meeting at the hospital, raise their hands, say that that doctor is not practicing what they consider standard of care. And these are called sham, you know, hospital reviews. And these are sent to the state boards. And the state board says, well, there's more people raising their hands against him than there are for him because there's only that one doctor who's defending himself. And they take your license. Hmm. And you're done. What it really boils down to with the licensing most of the time in practicality is that whether you stay a doctor or not isn't so much how effective you are, but more... Uh, how popular you are and what a team player you are. You're not a troublemaker. Oh, exactly. And it's not only you're not a troublemaker, it's that you are not a financial economic threat to the current doctors and to whichever community you land. And there's many pressures they can put on you to get you to play ball with the doctors that are already in power at a certain hospital or a certain community. And it's it's a terrifying experience having to look at a patient, look at a situation, feel that something is or is not indicated as a young doctor who just came out of their residency, and then be having to make decisions all day long between, well, I know what the right thing to do is, but I'm terrified that if I do this, the other doctors in the community may feel threatened by the new procedures I know since they've been out of residency for 10 years or whatever, and they may raise their hands against me and try to force me out. It's a very terrifying experience. So most young doctors will very quickly, you know, due to their brainwashing and their fears and all this kind of stuff, look, we're, we're, we're trained in our residency and our med schools to not question the system. We are trained to look at the attendings and the doctors above us like they are demigods, and they can dish out either punishment or a world full of riches and BMWs and beautiful spouses and nice houses, and we can be brought into the country clubs and be the doctor that is part of the community. But those guys above us, they hold that key, and we have been told that from day one, and we are terrified to go against it. Um, I'm sure that prevents improvements in care because anytime somebody comes up with a, a real innovation, it's a threat to the status quo. It's potentially it rocks the boat, I imagine. Oh, yeah, I can give you an example of my life where it first happened to me when I was a young surgeon just out of residency practicing. Whether someone agrees with or disagrees with the concept of a certain procedure, hernia or pair or whatever, I, I'm, I'm just going to talk within the context of what I knew at the time and what I was doing and, and, and the little decisions that I made to try to make things better and what happened to me. I did a certain type of procedure to fix a hernia, to fix hernias, that allowed me with a type of scope, a fiber optic scope, to see and access a lot of structures that aren't typically seen or accessed during normal hernia operations. One of the things that came across my you know, practice was a gentleman who had a hernia that was painful and he wanted it fixed. I was talking to him and his wife about the procedure, and he just kind of jokingly, you know, off the cuff, said, hey, doc, you know, me and my wife are interested in me getting a vasectomy. 
someday, and I was just wondering why you're in there. Could you do that? Because I'm not really interested in having a second operation or having an incision on, you know, down there. It sounds scary. And, you know, I thought about it, and I realized that the technique that I do for hernias allows me to do a pain-free vasectomy at the same time of the hernia operation, save him anesthesia, save him pain, save him whatever. And, you know, whether someone agrees with doing vasectomies or not, I mean, this is, this is something the patient and his wife felt strongly about. And I looked at it and I said, well, you know, if this is what they're going to do and this is what they want done, there's no reason to put them through a second procedure and all this down the road. So I think I probably performed the very first laparoscopic vasectomy at the time of a hernia and saved him a second procedure. And I don't get paid for the second procedure. As a surgeon, you only get paid for the first procedure, but it just seemed like the right thing to do for this couple. So I did it. Well, that that case, you know, the, the surgical nurses thought that was really interesting and a good innovation, and my case kind of started to spread around the hospital that I did this. And before I knew it, I was sitting in front of the medical board at that hospital because the urologist had filed a complaint against me for doing a procedure that's within their turf, and they didn't care whether I saved him another operation or saved him time or money or saved him anesthesia risk. They wanted their procedure. And I was told, quite frankly, if you ever do this again, you will be out of medicine forever. So it's it's not just you'll be disciplined, not not just you'll be fired, but we will destroy your career. No, like you, you, we will destroy your career. We will report to the state board that you have done a unclinically proven procedure that we deem places the safety of this community at risk. Yeah. Yada 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 yada. Yeah, because in and, most sorry, I was just gonna say right. in most careers outside of medicine, yeah, you go to one company, even a big company, and you get fired in that field, it isn't critical to your career, particularly, you know, it's looked at a case by case basis, you can explain it to your new employer mm-hmm. and, and and you can get hired in the same field. You know, you work for ten years to get there. You know, you can get hired somewhere else, you have experience and so forth. But in the field of medicine you're saying it's basically not like that at all. No, I mean, once once you receive a, a a order of disciplinary action from either a hospital staff or a medical board, your prospects of getting another job somewhere else, getting on insurance panels that are going to accept you, keeping your DEA license, I mean, you really become a black sheep. Uh, finding another group who wants to hire you or if somebody... Uh, is thinking about using you as a doctor. They can research you quickly on the Internet. And for the rest of my life, if you put William K, comma, MD in a Google search, the first thing that will come up is information about the Oregon Board of Medical Examiners, you know, revocation of my license. And that, that is my legacy after all of the work that I've done and all the people I've helped. That's my legacy. It comes well, down to that simple statement. I don't know if this helps at all, but within our community, being a troublemaker can be worn as a badge of honor. And you're welcome amongst us, Will. Well, it's interesting because, and I appreciate that, after I went through losing my license for nothing more than being, quote, disruptive, meaning that there was no findings of patient care problems or inappropriate medical action, it it was disruptive, meaning... I disagreed with a hospital administrator about certain procedures I didn't think were appropriate at the hospital I was at due to infrastructure. And that's what I lost my license for, ultimately. And 
the interesting thing is I contacted a society called the Simmelweis Society that tracks and deals with doctors who lose their licenses for either doing innovations or being disruptive. There's an entire society internationally that tries to track this and, and help doctors. And after contacting them and telling them what happened to me, because I didn't know where else to turn, I was devastated. They had a psychiatrist call me back within 20 minutes, and he was a psychiatrist from Boston, and he didn't know me from Adam. And he said, listen, he goes, doctors who go through this, it's, a, it's, it's more of a tremendous psychological trauma than you can even imagine right now. He goes, are you married? And I said, well, no, I'm engaged. And he said, she will leave you. Is your family behind you? Yes, they currently think that you know bad things happen to me. I said, they will turn on you. He goes, everybody that you know and everything that you love will be taken away from you. You'll lose your car, you'll lose your house, you'll lose your friends, you'll lose your family, you won't be able to find a job. He said, this is the pattern. He goes, I have dealt with doctors who have been through this, and this is a staggering statistic. Six out of ten doctors who lose their license for this reason kill themselves in the first six months because their entire life is gone and not retrievable. And he said, you know, he goes, I will call you every day if need be, and here is my number, and I will not charge you a thing because I know you don't have any money. You have nothing, and I don't want to see you be one of the six out of ten. And it's, it's a devastating blow, and doctors know what the consequences are of being the innovator or being the badge of honor guy, the guy who bucks the system a little bit. They know the risks of that, and they're terrified. They lose their house. They lose their family. Their kids can't go to the schools they're sending them to. Their parents turn on them. Their friends look at them as a criminal. You know, when people read that on the website about me, you know, I'm a single man again, and I have met women socially that I've decided to start a relationship with me. And nowadays, people, even when they start relationships, they Google someone. And I have had women that I've started a relationship call me and say, I don't think this is a good idea. I read what they said about you on the Oregon board, and I don't want to be involved with someone like you. So it tracks you in your social life, your family life, your professional life. And doctors know this. They see what happens to people like me, and they are terrified of ever bucking the system. I guess it sort of goes without saying they have strong motivation not to push any alternatives regardless of their merits. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the interesting thing is you ask, well, what is the pressure from the other side? What's their motive? And the motive is almost universally financial. The smart doctors, you know, in terms of maintaining their careers, being, quote, smart, what they learn early on is they recognize that the right decision is the decision that, you know, greases the wheels of the healthcare system. It keeps the hospital administrators happy. It keeps the insurance companies happy. It keeps their practice partners happy. And that's, that's what clouds their decision-making. They no longer think about the individual patient. Patients come and go. And they realize pretty quickly, you know, if one or two patients are disappointed with their care, um, there's really no, there's really no bad outcomes for me if one or two patients are disappointed with their care. But if I disappoint the hospital administrator, if I disappoint my colleagues in town, if I disappoint the medical board, um, those consequences are irreversible and devastating. So they're they're willing to throw a patient or two under the bus to keep the other people happy because 
that's what they feel they have to do. And you just you just want to make sure you're not one of the people that's being thrown under the bus every now and then. But, you know, there's no way for most people out there when they go to a medical doctor or surgeon or anything else, or they go for imaging, I mean, how do they know whether their procedure is actually indicated? Um, you know, how do they know if their scan or their labs or their x-rays are actually indicated? There's a lot of politics and a lot of financial pressure to keep these wheels greased and keep this thing going. Sarah and I have been researching this stuff for years. Um, you're not really saying anything we haven't heard before, but yet at the same time when we actually hear it from a warm, living human being who's been there literally in the trenches, it's still kind of shocking, you know, still. Let's move on to something a little more lighthearted, I guess, <laughs> for now, uh, just for the time being. I remember you telling us a story about a surgical instrument you had that broke and what you went through. And we found it both sad and amusing at the same time. You remember what I'm talking about? I know the, I know the incident. Yeah, we'd like to hear it again. Well, I think the incident you're referring to is I was, again, a young surgeon working at a hospital, and there's a certain type of instrument that we use to remove gallbladders during laparoscopic or the minimally invasive gallbladder surgery. And through this instrument, during the case, we pass electricity, and it's designed to pass electric current uh, so that we can control bleeding uh, during the case because we don't have the belly completely open. We're working through very small holes with instruments. And I was doing the case with this instrument, and I went to step on the pedal to pass the electricity through the instrument to control some bleeding. And there were some problems with the insulation in the instrument because it was old or cracked. And I got shocked. Instead of the current going through the instrument and into the, the field of the operative field, it jumped from the instrument through the cracked insulation right through my surgical club and gave me a third-degree burn through one of my fingers. Needless to say, you know, I was shocked, literally, and upset and and, and hurt. And, you know, I asked for another instrument, and they didn't have a replacement. I found a way to salvage the case without having to do a big incision and, and, and open the patient's belly, um, but I was not happy about it because it extended the case for probably an extra hour, which isn't uh, that it should have been, which is a risk to a patient. And after the case, you know, I threw the instrument away and told the hospital OR manager, you know, make sure you order another one of these immediately because this is a necessary instrument for this case, and this is a very common case, taking out gallbladders. This isn't uh, an unusual operation. I was told, you know, if you want an instrument, Dr. K, we're going to have to put this through the surgical committee, and they're going to have to look at things, and that could be a six-week process and, you know, all kinds of craziness. The reality is this, this instrument, <laughs> the funny thing is this instrument costs $187. I looked it up myself after the case. Matter of fact, the instrument maker for it says on their website, if you need this in your OR for $187, we will make sure it's there within 20 hours by FedExing it. Mm -hmm. And I was stunned that we really have to go through this kind of problematic stuff to get a $187 instrument to do safe surgery on sick people. Mm -hmm. So I went to the hospital administrator's office and I said, 
you know, what is going on here? You know, I know I'm a new surgeon. I'm new to, you know, practicing in commercial medicine. I'm just out of training, but, you know, this doesn't even make any sense. You know, I, I need this instrument. The other surgeons need this instrument. It's $187. Heck, I'll pay the $187. You guys can pay me back after six weeks to figure it out. We need it. You can send me a check. I don't care, but let's let's get one. You know, and he said, you know, I don't know what your problem is or why you're, you know, being so argumentative about this, but, you know, $187, $187, and we're going to have to look into that before we can approve it, and you're just going to have to cool your jets and calm down. The next day, I came into the hospital to do some other procedures around on my patients, and the hospital that day was putting up one of those massive highway jumbotrons that probably cost $200,000 to install to advertise their hospital uh, to the local highway and all the traffic that drove by it. And, you know, it occurred to me, I was like, wow, there's something really wrong here. I can't get a $187 instrument to do safe surgery on the sick patients, but we can afford a $200,000 jumbotron. Like, what is going on out here? You know? It just doesn't make any sense, Thomas. You know, it's, just, yeah. it's just insanity when you're a young surgeon full of vim and vigor to save your community. And you see well, these things. It just breaks your heart. Yeah. Well, what people don't realize, and you could tell them over and over and over again, and they still don't realize it because it's the opposite has been drilled into their heads since they were little kids, all these doctor shows and so forth. But um, At the top, decisions aren't being made based on medicine. They're being based on money. Yeah. These people at the top aren't doctors. They're businessmen. They may be businessmen with medical degrees, yeah. But they're still businessmen. So they spend money on marketing and promotion instead of their actual patients. Mm-hmm. Thomas, I've never I've never worked in a hospital, and I worked in a bunch of them. Probably more than I probably had privileges at more than a dozen of the top hospitals throughout the Northwest and the Midwest. And I've never worked at a hospital where the administrator who is overseeing the care of the patients at that hospital at that very high level, the CEO of the hospital. I've never worked at one where the CEO had any medical education. None. R- really? No, none. We, we just I mean, it, 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 it used to be common that the CEO or chief of staff and this sort of stuff at hospitals was a retired doctor who is now doing administrative things or went back to school and got a little more education and health management. Yes, it used to be doctors who, you know, when they retired or they stopped practicing, they filled that role and they did have some really good insight and they could kind of step back and they could at least understand and manage the staff they're working with because they knew something about medicine. But it has reached the point now, I don't think you're going to find a major hospital in this country that has someone with a medical degree or any medical education who is at the top of the food chain pulling the strings. So those people are done. It's actually worse than we thought. Yeah. Well, you are um, a surgeon, not just a regular doctor. So we've come across in our research cases in which hospitals try and push certain surgeries that make them a lot of money even though they're not actually necessary and in some cases may actually harm the patient. Have you come across that when you were a young surgeon? Continually, continually. And that was probably, you know, to put things into light, I I left practice six months before they pulled my license. 
And, you know, it may look to the outsider that, oh, he doesn't practice anymore because he lost his license. But the reality is I lost my heart for being a surgeon in our system long before I lost my license. Uh, it was a progressive, slow death of my comp- my love for this field in this country because of exactly what you're saying. I found myself in many situations, and you know, I will admit it, I, I was a doctor, and I look back, and I know that I performed surgical procedures and operations which had very, very tenuous indication at best. And I can look back, and I'm ashamed of that, and, and I'm embarrassed to admit it. But if people don't stand up and admit it, you know, no one knows what happened. And the reason I know those procedures happen and that kind of stuff is going on is because I was involved in it. I was part of that team. I was part of that culture. The reason I justified it is, well, the American College of Surgeons says this is what we're supposed to do. My colleagues are behind it. This is what the literature says. And even though many times my rational common sense that was coming out of my medical training was saying, you know, but this doesn't really make sense for this patient. I understand that they have these guidelines if you're looking at a population of a million people and they've got these studies. But for this patient, it doesn't really apply. But I would do it anyway and do it anyway to, you know, make sure that I'm part of the club and everyone's happy with my practice. I can remember the last time that I did a procedure that I didn't feel wholeheartedly behind. And it was a hernia repair that I did on a gentleman. It wasn't a painful hernia. It wasn't incarcerated. He lived close enough to the hospital to get there if he ever had a problem with it. He didn't even mind it. His family doctor found it during a routine physical exam and said, well, Everyone over five years old, if they have a hernia, needs it repaired because you could die from it. Well, if you look at the world literature, that's certainly not the case. There's signs and symptoms that happen if it's getting to be a complication. He was a smart gentleman. He understood what I told him about if you have this problem or this problem or this problem in the future. The guy lived five minutes from the hospital in the town I was at, and he was smart enough to listen to me, and if he was going to have a problem, he could drive himself to the ER and they could give me a call, and we could do surgery if need be. There was no risk to this gentleman to not live with his hernia, and he, wa- he, he was fine living with his hernia. He wasn't embarrassed of it cosmetically. It didn't bother him. He wasn't a weightlifter. He didn't have a manual labor job that he was worried about lifting things and worsening his hernia. He was a retired guy. He was just, you know, routine physical exam. But I played the game. Well, American College of Surgeons and everyone says, you know, if you're over five years old, everyone needs their hernia repaired. Well, I operate on that gentleman, and three days later, his wife um, came into my office, and she gave me a big hug, and she was crying, and she said, you know, thank you, Dr. K, for the great care you've given my family and everything you've done for us, and I really want you to be there at his funeral. Uh, He died last night, and we don't blame you. You've given us fantastic care, and, you know, we just want you to be there because you're so close in our heart, and this guy had a heart attack on the table during the case that was not discovered during the anesthesia, and he went home, and three days later, uh, his, his heart burst at night, and he died. And he wouldn't have had that heart attack if I wouldn't have put him under an elective procedure to fix a hernia. And when she put her arms around me and told me what a wonderful doctor I was, and they want me at the family funeral and all this kind of stuff, um, I mean, I went home and almost vomited. 
I was like, what have I done? I knew he didn't need that hernia repair. I knew it in my heart. And I looked back and I said, you know, never again. I, I will not do another procedure that doesn't make sense for a patient when I'm sitting there looking in their eye and that's what we decide together. I will not push, I will not manipulate them, and I will not talk them into anything. And that day I changed my practice. And within six months, my colleagues were so frustrated with the way that I practiced that, you know, it was time to leave. So that happens a lot. There's a lot of unindicated procedures going on. Yeah. There's a lot of breast biopsies that don't need to be done, a lot of hernias that don't need to be repaired. There's a heck of a lot of hysterectomies and C-sections that should never be happening. Well, before uh, I let Sarah move on with more stuff here, I'd like to just jump in with something a little personal. My mom pretty much went through her whole life without seeing a doctor. And then, you know, in her, I guess, late 60s, maybe early 70s, I can't remember how old she was, when it started going in for mammograms, and lo and behold, after getting exposed to that radiation, suddenly she has breast cancer, you know, a couple years later. Then she enters the system, and I watched the case, and over a period of several years, they killed her. No, the cancer didn't kill her. They killed her with their treatments. I mean, anybody with any intelligence watching the case who saw the facts, it's its very clear. You would see the dramatic downswings in her health after her so-called treatments for the cancer. This was just unmistakable. And they did. They, they killed her. And after it was all over, Perhaps the whole affair, the thing that shocked me the most, after it was all over, my dad invited the oncologists over to a supper to commemorate them and their great work. And, you know, there's a part of me that just can't get over that. You know, it's kind of like if you take your car to a mechanic, and that mechanic sets your car on fire and then blows it up with dynamite, would you invite him over for a supper? It's a good job. I'm sorry. I, I just, I just felt the need to rant about that, Will. I just and you know, and I'm sorry. I, I don't want to put you in the, the same category as these other doctors because I wouldn't. If if I did, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You would not be on the Health Watch Report. Um, we really like and respect you, and you you have obviously made some mistakes along the way, but the difference is you have a conscience about it. You are willing to break out of the box and say, you know, damn it, something here is not right. And so few people can do that. Yeah, and I, and I understand why people like your father, you know, make that gesture to doctors even when there's terrible outcomes, just like that family made that gesture to me. Because there is a, especially in people, you know, of your father's age, there is an implicit yeah, respect, there's an implicit trust that whatever that doctor is taking care of you or your family member is putting you and your family member first at all costs and doing the things that, you know, they know are going to be the best things for them. And that implicit trust and that implicit, you know, feeling of bonding of your, your doctor is almost like a family member and you can trust them to that degree. You know, the sad thing is, is that implicit trust and 
feelings that we used to have in this country, they aren't warranted anymore, quite frankly, because what I see doctors doing, what I saw when I practiced, and like I just told you, I did myself, was many doctors don't put the patient first, and they don't put the family first, and they don't tailor the medical approach or anything to the individual. They don't take time to listen to what the individual really wants out of their health care. They look at people, they diagnose a disease, and now they're off and running. They certainly don't take the time to step back and say, you know, you are Joe Smith first. Second, you have this. Now, Joe Smith, what do you want out of your life? What do you want out of your health care? And let me do what I can to advise you and assist you first. And then we'll talk about how the treatment options play into that. And that's the part that's missing. It's not done anymore. And so the, the trust is really misplaced. We used to joke in residency, it's really callous, but it's, it's the reality. I mean, this is, this is the way we're almost trained, is I would be in rounds and in the morning, and my chief resident always around would say, all right, Will, um, tell me about the breast cancer case in room three. Okay, tell me about the pancreatitis in room four. Okay, tell me about the vasculitis in room 6B. You know, we never actually said, tell me about Mrs. Smith in room four who has a problem with her pancreas. No, tell me about the pancreas in room four. Tell me about the vasculitis. I mean, in our entire training, we depersonalize and dehumanize people to just whatever their ailment is, and that's all we focus on. We didn't care about the person. We didn't even take the time to get to know them or learn anything about them. It was just, tell me about the pancreatitis in room three next. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that trust and that bond that the older generation maybe had when they were younger with their family doctor, which really doesn't even exist anymore, that's an inappropriate given trust nowadays. I, I'm sorry that it's inappropriate. I hate that it, it can't be given anymore. I didn't witness it in my practice. I didn't witness it with most of my colleagues that I felt that way when I watched them practice. It just wasn't, it's not what's going on anymore. They're smart people. The doctors are really intelligent. They've got a ton of knowledge base and they've been through a ton of training. But you know what? You can have all the technological, intellectual training in the world. And if you are not really focusing on the patient, that's not appropriate. Well, it's not just that, Will. It's also a matter of doctors are no longer willing or able to practice the scientific method anymore. They don't look at a patient and carefully consider all the cause and effect relationships involved in their dilemma to look at their body in a holistic manner. Now, what they do is they get symptom A, symptom B, symptom C. They look up what is the standard procedure for treating that and what disease Mm -hmm. does that qualify to be without digging any deeper. You're absolutely right. Mm Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. It's become what in medicine we call the algorithmic method, you know, meaning there's a flow chart. And the flow chart starts with your age and your race and your sex. And the flow chart then says, what are your symptoms? And then we plug into the flow chart the physical findings. And then after that, the flow chart is already created. There's books with these flow charts to tell doctors, now you order this and this and this and this. And then based on what those show up, you do this and this and this and this. It's all algorithmic flow charts. And, you know, they've done experiments using computers that they plug these flowcharts into to see how good the computer is. And it's, computers are faster. They're, they think faster than a human being. They can process more variables than we can. 
And they took all these flowcharts at Harvard, and they plugged all of these into these big computers to, fit, to see how effective this would be. And the computers were abysmal at coming up with the right diagnosis. Terrible. It was like 15% of the time they got the right diagnosis. The rest of the time they were wrong. So, you know, I look at that experiment and I go, wait a minute. We know that flowchart medicine doesn't work because if it worked, those computers would have hit the right diagnosis every time if it was as simple as a computer. If it was as simple as a flowchart, they'd hit it every time. And yet, what are we training our medical doctors to do? You're right. We've stopped with the scientific method. We've stopped with looking at the individual patient. And we've gone into, quote, evidence-based medicine, which creates what? Flowcharts. <laughs> yeah. You can just come up and those flowcharts right. have, have already failed in computer models of being accurate. And yet, that's how we're teaching our doctors now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you can't put the human equation on paper. You know, I'd give a piece of advice to your listeners about, right. a very simple, about a very simple thing they can do. You know, I'm a surgeon, so I can talk best about things they can do if they're offered a procedure, told to have a procedure. And actually, really any disease, even if they're offered a medication. What I would recommend everybody to do, and I, and I talk about this with my patients I advocate for, mm -hmm. I say, if you are given a new diagnosis, if you are offered a drug or a procedure, the very first thing that you should ask your doctor is, can you please explain to me what would happen to me and what are the consequences, what is known about this disease if I choose to do nothing? And it's amazing how many doctors will not answer that question. They simply won't have the conversation. Well, it's like in... And yet... Sorry to cut you off, but I was going to say it was like in the case of cancer when cancer patients do much better. I believe it was four times better mm -hmm. when they have no treatment, elect to have no treatment at all than when they actually go for well, mm -hmm. mainstream medicine. Yeah, and was it like they live 12 times longer mm -hmm. if they have either no treatment or alternative treatments? Yeah. There's some very interesting stuff to talk about if you start the discussion with what happens if I do nothing based on what we know about this disease over the past 200 years. Probably the strongest case in point is something like prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. You know, prostate cancer is really aggressively treated in this country, mm -hmm. and yet 80% of men over the age of 80 or 70 years of age that die of unrelated causes, so they die of heart attack or they die of stroke or whatever, 70 to 80% of those guys, if you do an autopsy on them, have prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. Prostate cancer didn't kill them. Prostate cancer never killed him. It was, it was a completely secondary finding. And the same thing, you, you say the same thing about breast cancer. A lot of women over the age of 80 who die of a stroke or a heart attack or old age or whatever you want to call it, um, if, you, if you do enough searching and digging post-mortem, you will find evidence of breast cancer. So you sort of sit there and go, you know, do people really understand that you can have cancer in your body and in some ways, when you look at how common it is in people over the age of 70 or 80 who die of other causes, you have to ask yourself, wow, maybe we're over-treating this. Maybe we're over-screening this. And maybe we're hurting people with the chemotherapeutic cocktails and the x-ray, you know, chemotherapeutic regimens and the excess surgery and the blood transfusions and everything we do to these people because, you know, you always have to start out with, you know, what happens if I do nothing? And, and is this something that is really a terrible threat and danger to me? Sometimes the answer is yes. 
but sometimes the answer is no. But if your doctor won't have that discussion with you, mm-hmm. you've got to at least be concerned that you've got a doctor who, eh, I'm not really sure that they're thinking anything outside of a computer algorithm. And they're certainly not thinking about me because they won't even have the discussion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's some cases that I've researched on this topic, and in fact there's one person locally who I know who had this done, in which she had a DNA test that told her that there was that she had a gene that increased her chances of having breast cancer at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. And so, based upon this finding, she had all of her breast tissue removed completely, preemptively. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was actually she had no symptoms at all. She was a very healthy woman. Perfectly healthy. Yes. But and just in case maybe someday yes. there might be some tumor. And this is becoming, I don't know if the word is popular, but it's becoming more and more common. More and more mainstream. Yes. So just preemptively and have your breasts removed. And I because just, you might have the wrong gene. Yeah, and I just know. find it truly disturbing. It's incredible. I, I found that very disturbing. You know, as a general surgeon, I did breast cancer surgery myself, and it was part of my specialty in practice. And I was present in residency when that technology and that genetic screening for future risk of breast cancer was developed and started to become popularized. And I watched a significant amount of, you know, women being counseled by a geneticist and sent to surgeons to have both their breasts removed and all this kind of stuff because, well, it's inevitable. If you have this gene, you're going to get breast cancer, and so we might as well just remove your breasts and, you know, decrease your risk. That is not medicine from a standpoint of anything that historically has ever been deemed as a caregiver or a doctor. That is a very bizarre turn that our technological medical world has taken. I mean, I'm sure everyone who listens to this radio show is familiar with the concept of first do no harm. And it was a statement, you know, made back in the days of Hippocrates for guiding doctors and surgeons to be cautious with invading and messing with the body, which does a very good job if taken care of and supported with nutrition and normal living. It does a very good job of maintaining its health. And so doctors were cautioned a long time ago, first, do no harm. Intervene when there is no other option that we currently understand. Then, and only then, intervene in the natural processes of the body for the purpose of hopefully being right. And we need to be very humble about saying, well, you know, I know I'm messing with some brilliant technology here called the human body. It's way beyond my mind, and it's way beyond the scope of any textbook, but this patient's suffering. I can't find any other way to help them except to intervene and I'm going to be humble about it and, you know, try to do my best. But first, I'm going to do no harm. Well, the concept of preemptively operating on somebody who is not currently sick is a tremendous violation of that ethic. It is a tremendous violation of our code of what it really is to be a doctor. And it's a tremendous insult to the human body, which we revere as the most complex, non-understandable, beautiful creation that's ever hit this earth. So, you know, to me, it's a complete violation of the mindset of a doctor who supposedly is going to do no harm first because he has a tremendous respect for the human body, the soul, and the mind. 
So I, I'm with you. I mean, I am completely against any preemptive surgery on a patient who's not currently sick. That's insanity. We, we can't outthink genetics. We can't outthink physiology. We cannot do that. It's just not that simple. Um, treat, treat the sick, leave the non-sick alone. Very simple, <laughs> very simple game. Well, well, this is something that um, some of our listeners will find shocking, some won't. As somebody who's been so immersed in the system for so long, you'll probably find this shocking, but we'll see. Believe it or not, Will, the surest way to ensure that a woman will never get breast cancer is for her to have a child and breastfeed that child. It does something with the hormones to reset something. But a woman who breastfeeds her child is almost assured not to have breast cancer. In fact, way back, way back in the day, breast cancer used to be known as nun's disease because only the nuns caught it. You know, you're absolutely right. And the sad thing for the listener is, is to, to hear from someone like me who has studied traditional Western medicine is that not only do we know that, not only are medical doctors the ones that discovered that connection, but it's actually part of the statistical risk model that we use when we are evaluating a woman for what her risk of breast cancer is. If she is what we call nola paris, which means she's never had a child, we know that her risk of getting breast cancer is higher. But you certainly don't hear family doctors talk to women about you know, having children and all this kind of stuff and going through the normal female expression and life and all these sorts of things keeps you healthy and makes your family safer and decrease your risk of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't talk about this because it's too politically sensitive, you know. Yeah, well, we all, um, that actually makes a statement in itself. We assumed that, you know, only the alternative community know, knew about this because doctors never mentioned this to their patients. And, of course, we've never been to med school. Hearing from you that this is well known, but yet never mentioned to the patients, it, it kind of makes a point, a sad point. No, it, it's a really sad point. And the other, some of the other risk factors we talk about is the, the length of a woman's menstrual cycle, meaning how long does she menstruate during her lifetime. And the younger she is when she starts her menstrual cycle, and the later she is at the other end of the spectrum before she hits menopause, that length of time increases her risk of breast cancer, we know statistically. And we're seeing younger and younger and younger girls start their menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. There is something wrong with the environment, and there's some things that are doing some crazy stuff. Out there in Colorado Springs, for instance, when I was doing some work with a research company looking at salivary hormone testing, which is a very high end of hormone testing, we started to get a lot of very interesting specimens. We, we had a test called a cycling female profile where we, would, we, we could look at a woman's estrogen and progesterone just out of her saliva. We didn't have to draw blood out. She could spit in a little vial every one or two days, and we could look at how these hormones are interacting, of course, across her entire menstrual cycle during the mid-ovulatory phase and the menstrual phase. Very interesting stuff to look at, and there's a lot of good research that can come out of it. But here's what was spooky. What was spooky is we started to get specimens of doctors studying girls and wanting to stay their menstrual cycle who were like five and six years old. 
I mean, I was getting these hormone profiles that look like a 25-year-old woman's hormone cycling who's menstruating who's five years old. Mm-hmm. And I'd call these doctors back and go, you've got to be kidding me. This is wrong, right? I mean, it says here the patient's five. She goes, yeah, she's been menstruating for almost a year now. Mm-hmm. I'm like, and, and it was really prevalent. I mean, really prevalent out there. There was a lot of pediatricians that were calling us going, you know, why are, why are my pediatric patients who are five and six years old menstruating? So, you know, but when you start menstruating that young, <clears throat> boy, your risk, your risk of breast cancer mm-hmm. goes up as well. well we know what's causing it. It's the growth hormones in the food. I mean, it works on the animals, it works on us. It's pretty simple. Yep, and they're being pumped into the animals to increase productivity. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the problem is at the grocery store. It really is. And you know, all the medicine in the world isn't going to fix that either. No, everyone in the medical world is looking at all these bizarre things that are happening, and instead of asking what's causing it, they just turn around and in some ways are almost excited about it because they got more patients to treat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we find it tragic that standard care generally means simple treatment. Uh, more often than not, it's chemical warfare against the body to suppress a certain symptom. As you personally know, sometimes that includes surgery too. And sometimes hospitals become like chop shops, removing offensive organs that are you know, displaying the wrong symptom. You mentioned gallbladder surgeries earlier. We found that some people have their gallbladder removed, but then stones reappear elsewhere. Yes. Where, 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 do you remember that? The liver. It was in, yeah, the stones start reappearing in the liver after you remove the gallbladder. So the gallbladder was, wasn't really the problem. It was just part of a symptom. The stones were. Yeah, and that's definitely physiologically and from a pathophysiology standpoint, that's very possible. And that's actually discussed in the surgical textbooks. You can have, after gallbladder surgery, you can end up with common bile duct stones. You can end up with stones that form in the liver and things like this. So you're right. We don't have all the answers. And I'm not saying that somebody can't benefit from gallbladder surgery who has gallstones. But by all means, it needs to be somebody who has a very serious problem with their gallbladder. And they need to be told before the surgery that we can't guarantee you that you won't form stones somewhere else and at least be upfront and honest with them. Mm-hmm. And most patients who are, you know, talked to about gallbladder surgery are told a very simple thing, Thomas. They're told, you know what, you've got pain in your belly. We see you have gallstones on your ultrasound. And if we remove your gallbladder, that will fix it. And that is not a fair assessment of this complex physiology. Mm-hmm. So the patient doesn't even have the information to make mm-hmm. a reasonable decision on whether they want that surgery or not. Well, when you say it's not a fair ex- assessment, I think, Will, you're being very, very gracious. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'll tell you why I try to be gracious, because <laughs> I, 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 do, I do believe and that there are doctors out there who are trying to do good things. And I also believe that there's some very valuable, you know, the the tomes of knowledge that have been built up uh, in the libraries and the medical books and the hundreds of years of medical practice and passing down the art. But there's some very valuable, invaluable information there that can be very helpful to people when they are sick. And you know, I, I'm not going to discredit the entire medical field. My frustration is is the current application, the current focus, the current usage of our knowledge is, is what's gone aberrant. 
I mean, that's what has taken a left turn. That's why I try to be a little, you know, not, not so blindly harsh on everybody, especially I don't want to be blindly harsh on the science or the physiology behind it because there's some good stuff out of it. However, you know, like you guys report about, talk about, is uh, there is a blind application to this that is not anything but based on a model of a conveyor belt model, chunk to chunk to chunk to chunk to chunk, and that's Uh just bad. Well, we're all behind science-based medicine. I mean, we're completely behind it. It's just so rare that you see real science applied. I mean, when they ignore obvious cause and effect relationships and instead just lock on symptoms because that's what will keep the patients happy and coming back, you know, the patients don't want to hear, you know, well, you're going to have to make a major lifestyle change. This is going to take three to four years to cure a lot of effort on your part. You're going to have to change your diet. That's the point where patients start walking out of the office, you know, and that's not good for business. No. It's not good at all. Well, part of the thing... Go ahead, Will. Go ahead. I was going to say, you know, while we're on this topic of, you know, the sort of strange recommendations and the push and all that kind of stuff, you know, my my very, my most recent, just a couple days ago, my most recent advocate client that consulted me, consulted me because she stopped menstruating and she's in the age group that it's it's a normal time to have menopause. And she stopped menstruating, and but she was still in her 40s. And after three months of not having a period, um, the major reason she went to her doctor is she wanted to know if she had the potential of getting pregnant still, because her and her husband wanted to know that. Um, they weren't really interested in having any more kids. She didn't know if she still had the ability, but they kind of wanted to know. Well, she went into her OBGYN, and her OBGYN, based on that history alone, and no physical examination, said, oh, you know what you need? You need hormone therapy. She put her on hormone therapy, um, which she had never been on before. Now, mind you, when she went in, she didn't have any pain, any problems, anything, just the menstruation stuff. She puts her on hormone therapy. The woman starts bleeding erratically during the month, and she starts having a lot of pelvic and abdominal pain. So she goes back to her OBGYN and says, um, since you've put me on these hormones, this is what's happening to me. What should we do? And the OBGYN said, stay on the hormones. Let's schedule you for surgery to take out your uterus. <laughs> now, uh-huh. now, luckily, luckily, the woman listened to that, and it just didn't make a lot of sense to her. So she contacted me and said, can you look over my medical records and kind of tell me whether this makes any sense or not? And I was appalled. I was like, really? We give people medication that cause a disease, and then we recommend surgery because her uterus doesn't like the medication? That's insanity. Uh-huh. But that's what's happening. Yeah. I don't know how much it happens in regular... Well, I think it does happen a lot in regular medicine, but in psychology and in psychiatry in particular, they'll give a, a mind-altering medicine, and then when there are you know, dire side effects that are you know, terrible, instead of taking them off the medicine, they'll give them another medicine to, cover to, up the, to the suppress side the symptoms mm-hmm. of the bad side effects of the former medicine. And so over time, over a period of weeks or months, you end up with a cocktail of like four or five different psychiatric drugs, and most of them are being taken just to counteract the effects of the other drugs. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I see that all the time. You know, uh, and you see it with medications across different systems, not just in one system. You know, for instance, someone's put on a, what we call a beta blocker medication for their blood pressure. The beta blocker medication then causes them, the male to be impotent and causes depression. So now they put them on Viagra 
and an antidepressant. You know, and you sit there and go, wow, you know, we just caused two problems and added two more medications to control mildly elevated blood pressure. It's like, you know, this this doesn't make sense. You know, what what is going on here? There's nobody in, in the picture saying, you know, maybe there's a better way to go about this. Yeah, maybe you can drop your blood pressure by decreasing the sodium in your diet and doing some exercise and eating well and mm-hmm. losing an extra 20 pounds. Then you don't have to be impotent and depressed to be on these two other drugs. But they don't present that option to the patient. They go, oh, okay, now we see you have this, here's here's for that. Now we see you have this, here's for that. And it just keeps, like you said, it just keeps stacking up. One drug leads to another drug, which leads to another drug. It's, it's craziness. Yeah, and in some cases I think it's hard for... Even physicians, it gets to a point after so many drugs, you don't know what's being caused by a drug and what's being caused by something else, by the diet and the lifestyle, and, and really what's falling apart. <laughs> oh, tell, tell me about it. As an advocate, I'll have some people contact me. You know, I ask for their medical history and the list of their doctors and the list of their diagnosis and the list of their drugs and their supplements. And sometimes I'll get a patient who has 15 drugs on board. And when I start asking them, well, why are you on this one? Well, I'm on this one because they told me I need to be on this one because of this one. Why are you on that one? Well, I'm on that one because I need this one because of this one. Well, why are you on that one? Well, I don't even remember, I don't remember anymore. And, and I'm sitting there going, I don't know which drug is causing, what did they treat initially? And, and what's the drug on board to treat the treatment? I'm like, this is getting nuts. I can't even sort through it as an MD. I just kind of throw up my hands and go, you know, I'd like to help you, but this is, this is a really complex situation. And I'm afraid to pull something out it's kind of like having a stack of, in a house of cards, and I'm sitting there going, you know, I, I don't know which card's keeping this person propped up right now, and I can't really recommend them just stopping that one or that one because, you know, this is now a very complex physiology. It's been artificially created, and you don't know what's going to happen to these people. But, and usually, it's not the same doctor who's put them on all these drugs. Mm-hmm. So I try to call their doctors, and I'll get a hold of five different doctors and try to sort out this literally ball of string. And, you know, with enough phone calls, I can usually help sort it out and get their doctors on board. But it takes a lot of work sometimes because those situations, like you said, you don't even know what was started for what anymore. Yeah, depending on your perspective, it could be seen as either very sad or very comical. On a somewhat lighter topic, you told us a story when we last talked about how in the care of your own mother, you became something of a troublemaker. I'd like to hear about that again. I think you're referring to the treatment of my mother's diabetes. Mm-hmm. And she is a she's a type 1 diabetic. And, you know, for people who are listening and don't know much about diabetes, it just basically means that her pancreas doesn't make insulin anymore. And she's been on insulin, you know, to help with managing her blood sugar for, you know, probably since she was 30 years old and she's now in her 70s. And... One thing that I noticed with her as we were going through the years was as they had a harder time controlling her blood sugar, her blood sugar would start to get too low because of the insulin she was taking. And the recommendation started to become, well, since your insulin, since your blood sugar is getting too low and you take the medication that lowers your blood sugar, instead of just decreasing her medication, they told her to eat more food. So eat more food to keep your blood sugar up. As she ate more food, she started to gain more weight. As she gained weight, her blood sugar got worse, so they put more insulin on board, which then made her blood sugar start to be low again, and they told her, you need to eat more food. 
So then she gained more weight and her blood sugar got worse and they increased her insulin. And she got to a point where she was on massive amounts of insulin. She was getting to be morbidly obese and her blood sugar still wasn't controlled because of this vicious circle. And, you know, I finally, my mother's a very private person and there is a sad thing about being a doctor. It's a frustrating thing for all doctors. I don't care what kind of doctor you are. Your family will always look at you as a non-doctor. They, they, they cannot comprehend that little Willie Kay, who grew up riding a bicycle, could possibly know anything about the body. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you'll never be a doctor to your parents. They'll never see that way. So most of my family will not share their medical information with me or talk to me about it because, well, you know, he's, he's just my brother. He's just my yeah. son. We've run into but finally, yeah, I, I finally pinned my mother down after watching this for too long and said, you know, please show me what this progression has been because something is, is awry here. I mean, this is bizarre. So we went through this and I identified what I just told you. And I started to give her uh, some advice about using some certain uh, supplements, some minerals, getting a little more exercise, things like magnesium and chromium and L-carnitine and some natural type things that can help insulin sensitivity of the receptors. You know, so I started working on some of this with her. Sounds like sacrilege to me. (laughs) Yeah, sounds like sacrilege to medical doctors too, but her... But I researched them. I mean, it's not like I made this up off the top of my head or divined it. I mean, this is a researchable. There are things that work, and it's been you know proven and all this kind of stuff. So I'm like, well, why not try it? You know, it's not going to hurt my mother any worse than she's at, and let's see what's going on. So we were able with nutritional intervention and with some exercise to start bringing her insulin requirements down, and she started losing weight at the same time. The more weight she lost, the less insulin she needed. And when her blood sugar would start to drop, instead of having her eat food, we'd decrease her insulin. All right, drop off two more units if it's dropping your blood sugar. Great, you lost more weight. Now your blood sugar is lower again. Drop off the insulin. And we got her to the point that she was literally using 10% of the insulin that her doctors had given her. And she was completely stabilized on her blood sugar and of a normal weight. She was so proud. My mother always wants to please her doctor. She's so happy to please her doctor's. She was so proud she made an appointment with her endocrinologist just to go in and share her journal and share her blood sugar numbers over the past six weeks and share all the stuff that she'd showed her that we had done. She couldn't wait to impress her doctor. So she went in and she showed this to her endocrinologist and her endocrinologist said, Who 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 did this? You know, who <laughs> you know, who who possibly recommended this to you? Because this wasn't my recommendation. My wife said, Oh, you know, I'm so lucky I have a son who's a doctor and I finally listened to him, and we, he's been working with me, and we've kept this journal, and we're looking at my blood sugars, and we're doing calorie counts, and I'm doing exercise, and I'm going to water aerobics. And you know, She was all excited about this and wanted this doctor to know how proud she was of her son and her efforts. And this doctor literally said one sentence to her after that. She looked at her, and she said, I will no longer see you as a patient. If you are going to seek any sort of intervention outside of my care, you are undermining my authority over your health care. I don't care whether your son's a doctor or not. I am done with you. And she fired my mother as a patient. So, Will, it's a matter of you respect my authority, what it boils down to, huh? Yeah. She violated this. This woman feels she has authority mm-hmm. over my mother's health. Mm-hmm. But we've done lots of research. One thing we've come up against more and more 
it's, it seems to be increasing in frequency great dramatically, is the term compliance or patient compliance. It's like, where do they get this from that they're this elite upper class, the, the lords of medicine, and that they have the right and authority to punitively respond and punish their patients for, for disobedience. The, yeah, the lack of compliance. Uh -huh. Yeah. I mean, where does the scientific method come in there? Well, I think the natural history of where we've gotten to with talking about using compliance as a way to reprimand our patients is interesting because compliance used to be used as a term within medicine to characterize whether a patient had the ability to voluntarily follow a regimen that they've agreed to. For instance, if I have a patient who has dementia or mild dementia or a memory disorder and they have agreed and we have agreed and everyone's on board and they're in agreement to take Oh, say a pill once a day to make sure that their blood sugar or whatever stays okay. We used to talk about compliance as that patient is not compliant with taking that pill. And what we used to mean by that was they don't really have the ability to, because of their dementia or everything else to remember to take it and, you know, this is causing a lot of problems. It used to be a very benign kind of term that we used to measure whether patients if they were, had mental disabilities or other problems, couldn't comply with, with the treatment that they had chosen. Now we've shifted, and we're using compliance in a very different way. What we're saying is, if you decide that you don't want this treatment, and you don't take the pills that we tell you to take or get the surgery we want you to have, we're now using the term by saying, now you're non-compliant. Not with your ability to participate in your care, no, now you're non-compliant because you are disrespecting what we tell you to do and you're violating our orders and we're going to say you're non-compliant. It's like saying that you're breaking the medical law and you are a bad person and a bad patient because you won't do what the doctors tell you. Even if you don't want it, you're non-compliant. Yeah. And, yeah, we... and that's become a big stick yeah. that doctors beat their patients with and they threaten to fire them. And I've seen families be thrown out of pediatric practices because the family decides they don't want their child to get immunizations. And the pediatrician will say, well, if you will not comply with consent to give your child vaccinations, we cannot service you in this clinic because you are non-compliant and we won't deal with you. Well, we've come across lots of this, but the very worst cases, the most disgusting and despicable cases of all, are cases in which a child got sick somehow, went to the doctor, and the parent had the audacity to argue with the doctor, perhaps recommend a, an alternative, perhaps, and so forth. And after leaving, in some cases literally being thrown out of the office, the doctors would call social services and report the parent for medical neglect as if they're abusing that child for questioning his authority. And we get pretty wound up pretty tight about these cases. And it happens. It really does. No, it happens a lot. I've seen it happen. It happens a lot. And, you know, the thing that you see when you're in the hospitals, this is not so much an outpatient, but you'll see this in the hospitals a lot, is the formation of the bioethics boards 
that are a separate entity within hospitals. They have these things now called bioethics boards that they sweep in and they review these cases and they have full authority by the state to mandate procedures, especially on minors, despite the parent's wishes. And if the parent disagrees with the doctor, the doctor can send it to the hospital bioethics board and the bioethics board has the authority to say to the parent, um, we're overriding what you want for your child. This is now a bioethics decision and you don't have any say in it. Because to argue with us is tantamount to abuse and neglect of your child. And you're going to stand down and let us do what we want. Mm-hmm. And the bioethics board sounds like a good idea. I mean, yeah, it sounds great. Let's, let's have a bioethics board. You know, some ethical people who are helping make ethical decisions for patient yeah. care. That's not what a bioethics board is. It it is literally the secret service (laughs) or the KGB of (laughs) of hospitals. I mean, it's spooky. Yeah. That's something we're going to, we probably should do some investigating into. Yeah. But yeah, I think that. Yeah, they're major problems. Well, all the time, even with uh, things that aren't serious, you know, when a parent takes their child in, if they've got the flu or something like this. They feel very pressured by their doctor because it's like if you don't follow this, then they insinuate, and sometimes they just flat out say that you're not looking after your child if you do exactly what. Exactly, and the fear of losing the child is the one thing that you know any parent will just kind of back down to. Yeah, I mean, it terrifies every parent. There's yeah every parent out there. Yeah, and it, you know, I've had to I've had to advocate for some people on these sorts of issues who either the school is threatening them that their kid can't go to school without vaccinations, or a family doctor is threatening to call social services unless they put their kid on this drug or that drug or whatever. And I've, I've advocated for a few people in those situations, and my advice to the listener is, at this point in time there's not a lot of good places to turn unless you have a tremendous amount of money to hire attorneys, which most people don't. And But one thing that does seem to still be effective is protecting yourself behind religious rights. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, you know, don't realize that one of the places that they lose some authority, at least for now, is you can get behind a religious paradigm. For instance, the you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses who don't want to uh, participate in blood transfusion, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's part of their religion. And even if a child is in a major trauma and is going to die without getting transfused blood, the, the states and the federal government will still stand behind the parents and saying, that's against our religion and that's a violation. The other thing you can do is a smokescreen. People can make their decision on whether they want to fib or do whatever, but I, I am an advocate for helping people in these tough situations. And one thing that I've seen work is, especially with the vaccination game, is you say to the school boards and everybody else, my child, when they got their first booster shot at one point in their life, they had a terrible reaction to it. And they became anaphylactic and they were told never to have a vaccine. And so, you know, we're not interested in doing that. We're not going to take any risks. And it's very hard for somebody to prove that that didn't happen. Well, it was a doctor somewhere. I can't remember their name. I don't remember it. It's very hard for them to prove. And most of the time in those situations, a school board or a a pediatrician or someone will back down and go, 
yeah, the last thing I really want is to give them a vaccine, anaphylaxis, and death, because I'm going to get sued because the parents told me that's what happened before. So parents and people need to be creative because you're right. There's a lot of heavy, heavy, heavy threats and manipulation going on to force your hand. Well, if I remember correctly, Will, there are, I think, exemptions in every state. There are rules for exemptions, and... You simply have to follow them. I think most states do have religious exemptions. Other states have philosophical. philosophical. But what it boils down to is you can write on a piece of paper uh, to make it an official document that I don't believe in this. And you really don't have to give them a lot more. If if your state has an, an exemption, and I think just about all of them do, look up your particular state's law and just follow the rules. You know, we've helped people with that. You know, literally putting together a document that says, I don't believe in this, and the law doesn't require you, doesn't require me to explain myself. And that's important. If you don't have to explain yourself, and you usually don't, it's best you don't. Don't give them the ammunition. I agree. <clears throat> no, I, I agree with you. And, and, if, and, and you're, you're probably more knowledgeable on this than I am. And I think that, you know, you've done more research on that. And if, if people can, you know, write a document and say, I simply don't choose this and don't believe in this for me mm-hmm. and my family members, if that satisfies an exemption, then that's beautiful. And I would agree that there's no yeah. reason to go into yeah, it. It's actually pretty easy, Will. There are actually websites out there that give people example exemption forms for their state. Yeah. And so... Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, for five minutes on Google, and it's um, really all you need. I do know for a fact that the school systems are vicious on this topic. And they will play all kinds of games and make you think they're going to take your kids away or kick them out of school or this, that, and the other thing. But they really have no power in the matter. The the laws are there to allow for exemptions. Yeah. Well, and the really silly thing, especially when you talk about vaccines, is just this. What they'll typically tell the parents who don't want to vaccinate their children is, you have to vaccinate them because they're going to put all the other children at risk. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if the vaccines work and all the other children are vaccinated, yeah, there's no risk, right? <laughs> then I then I then I can I can flood the school with tetanus, and mm-hmm. no one's going to get hurt, right? If these things work, so yeah. you got a couple kids who aren't vaccinated, and the rest of the people are vaccinated. Where's the risk? It's, it's like if they really believe in these vaccines, then what's the problem? Yeah. Exactly. It's a very interesting question, and they get very uncomfortable when you start asking it. All right, Will. Well, as we're getting towards the end of our show, could you tell us about what you're doing now and what it is that you hope to achieve from here out? I'd be happy to. Yes, probably in the past year or two, uh, through being a medical advocate for family and friends throughout most of my life, that we've like we've talked about on the show, whether it be my father, mother, friends, I, I became aware that there's actually a growing field of medical advocacy that's recognized, and it's a recognized legal relationship that patients can choose with an advocate to make sure that issues like this are looked over and they have someone in their corner to coordinate their health care, look over their medications, make sure that things are indicated, even pick up a phone and call their doctor. The number of medical mistakes, whether they be chronic or acute, someone ends up in a hospital and they're forced to make some quick decisions and they don't have any medical knowledge, they're really at the beck and call, if you will, of whatever those doctors want to have happen. And those doctors, like we've talked about today, 
are under a lot of social pressures, financial pressures, paradigm pressures, and they don't really know the patient very well anymore. And what I've become passionate about with this medical advocacy field is that what I feel like I'm finally able to do again is I'm finally able to really focus on the patients and what's best for them. Because the beauty about what I get to do now, Sarah, is before I had to worry about pleasing two sides of the coin, the system to keep my practice open and maintain my finances and keep my license, and I had to try to be a good doctor to my patients. And oftentimes those things conflicted. The wonderful thing for me at this point in my life as an advocate is I get to say, look, I can talk to you exactly what you want to talk about. I can tell you exactly what I'd recommend to my sister or my brother or anyone else I love. I have no risks that I take to losing my license. They've already taken it. And the beauty is that I can stand back and really be the doctor that I always wanted to be without worrying about the consequences. And people can trust an advocate like me because I don't actually benefit based on your decision. You know, if you decide to have surgery, I don't make any more money than if you decide not to. Yeah. If you decide to take the medication, I don't make any more money than if you decide not to. I'm, I'm really interested in what their paradigm is, how they want to go about their health care, and I'll research anything they want me to, from, you know, acupuncture to supplements to herbs to medications, and it's been really fun for me, and I've learned a lot, and I, it's, it's, a, it's a great career. I'm really enjoying it. Well, I'm glad, and I'm certainly glad that we've got you on board, that you've found us, and mm -hmm. I look forward to working with you more in the future. Yeah, we're glad you're there to help us help others. We feel honored to call you amongst us, Will. Well, I appreciate that, Thomas and Sarah, and I'm, I'm very honored to be, you know, involved with HealthWise, and, you know, I'm very excited about people like yourselves who are really taking up the torch, you're educating yourselves, you're doing a tremendous amount of research, and you're getting information out there that the general population needs to hear so that they can make better health decisions. Well, it's time to wrap up, so we're just going to pass along a little information for all you out there. If you're interested in looking up Will's website and reading more about him, you can find him at informedhealthadvocacy.com. Again, that's informedhealthadvocacy.com. Yes, uh, feel free to look him up. You can also see him on the right side of our site on our advertising banners. We've put up one for him to make it easy for you to find him. Yeah. If you forget his site, you can always find him at ours. And our site is healthwise.org. Remember that wise is spelt W-Y-Z-E. And feel free to contact us. We have a contact us link at the very top of our site. I guess that's all for now, Sarah. Thanks for listening in, and check out our audio archives for other shows. We've got many, many countless hours yeah, definitely. of audio. Anyway. Right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Toodaloo. Bye.